Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining our webcast today. As you know, the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care is responsible for information and dialogue in our ecosystem across all stakeholder groups. This ensures that patients will win on access and quality. We need to constantly improve and change our tactics and our deliverables in cancer care. This is why we hold these webcasts. This is why you're dialing in. We have key opinion leaders, the influencers, the important decision makers who are driving change in our ecosystem. Please join us, participate, ask questions, and offer your voice too. It's hugely important. So thank you for joining. We look forward to participating with you more. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Again, superior job of managing some really good influencers and key opinion leaders. Uh, it was interesting. We had two strong regional players in managed care and two strong national players uh, between the United and Humana and certainly between Blue Cross and Harvard Pilgrim. So it was a lively discussion. You covered an awful lot of topics, but why don't you just kind of give us a summary of what your takeaways were, and then maybe we get into a deeper dive on what we observed. So I would say a couple things stand out. The first is that even though we had two regional pairs and we had two national pairs, without a doubt, they are more alike than they are different. I think that what we heard from Dr. Peskin and Dr. Sherman was completely in sync with what we heard from Dr. Loy and Dr. Newcomer. So that's number one. I think number two is necessity is the mother of invention. And I think, you know, there's... <laughs> There's about 9 million lousy metaphors for what's happening in healthcare right now. But I think if you want to be, if you will, critical, we're kind of making it up as we go along. We realize, I think, in retrospect, some of the things that we really were doing fairly well, and at least some of us, I'll speak for myself, yearn for the days that we could get back to that foot traffic in the clinic and the... Uh, holding of the hands, et cetera. You know, those are critical pieces that are missing. For example, that our discussion today about telehealth, which was a really good one, pointed out what I think is the conflict that payers are experiencing. And when I say conflict, I mean, no one in their right mind would say that telehealth is the appropriate care model for all patients. That's just ridiculous. I I have used the anecdote, for example, that as you know, I work in a volunteer clinic at a homeless shelter, and I am telling you that managing hypertension in that population with telehealth is a fool's errand. They don't have blood pressure cuffs at home. It's just craziness. You have to, there has to be a way to see those patients, right? Now, that's not to say that when we were in, and I'm in New York, when we were in the midst of the massive uh, outbreak that we experienced, we went exclusively to telehealth, but we knew we weren't doing as good a job as we're accustomed to doing. And I think that's true in oncology, right? There are some things that you do that are just better face-to-face. -face. On the other hand, again, as we learned on the panel today, there are some things that are probably are just as good by telehealth. Things like reviewing scan results or biopsy results, uh, maybe doing genetic counseling or an initial palliative care visit. It's easy for me to imagine a universe where telehealth largely replaces face-to-face -face visits. That's okay. In fact, before COVID, there was an obvious need 
to expand behavioral health services to cancer patients. There's just not enough behavioral health professionals to manage all the cancer patients that need those services. And so when I was at Aetna, for example, we were exploring ways to use telehealth to get those services to, to patients. So I think we're going to figure it out. I hope we're not going to kind of get into this regulation management kind of stuff where the health plan sets all kinds of insane rules about who can get it and who can't get it and who has to pay a copay and who doesn't have to pay a copay. That's, that would be ridiculous. I'm hoping that instead of that, what we do is we develop maybe a fair reimbursement model. Remember that the price you get paid for an office visit is based partially on what you as the physician or the provider do and partially based on the office expense. That's how the number is calculated. And as was brought up by the panel, the office expense structure is very, very different for a telehealth visit. So let's come to some mutually agreeable number. I don't think there's going to be parity, and I think that came up pretty clearly on the call today. I think the parity question will probably be put off until we have a little better control of the pandemic. But I don't expect parity, and I think Again, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't work for the payer anymore. All I just right. understand how they do things. And, and so I think we should have a good discussion about where is this a good delivery model and where is it not? So one of the things that I think Lee Newcomer referenced is uh, his own personal experience with telehealth, talking about the over-regulating of it or the benefits of deregulating it. But, you know, it's got a very rigid structure. And he wanted to just be able to get an appointment with the ear doctor and the yeah. rigid screening process wouldn't allow him to do that. No, we only have one size fits all. So I think that certainly in cancer is a problem, right? And we've heard that from others. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Lee's experience was more a reflection of providers trying to maintain a safe healthcare space for both their employees as well as for the patients who do need to be seen as opposed to a specific telehealth policy. I mean, I I think it was all about using telehealth as a screening modality to make sure that we keep the uh, office a safe space. And I will say just parenthetically that I think actually all of the oncology office practices that I know about deserve tremendous credit and thanks for doing what I consider to be an absolutely excellent job in keeping their patients safe when they come in to be cared for. They've done a magnificent job. Well, without a playbook, we've learned quickly. Yes. But let's go to the comments that Michael Sherman had uh, from Harvard Pilgrim. Our phone calls versus does everything have to be like you and I today on a screen or are phone calls suitable? Are they less robust? Should they receive the same parity in payment. You know, forget about telehealth and an office visit parity, but does a telephone call have parity with a Zoom or a, a Microsoft Teams, whatever anyone's using for the platform? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I'm gonna say something that's a little controversial, but- Oh, I always uh, do. Yeah, so good. Go right ahead. Um, yeah, I, I don't, there's no way that uh, doctors are gonna get paid like lawyers from the insurance company. That's just not happening. Now, what Michael suggested, which I actually think is correct, is that ultimately, 
the best way to manage this is not to manage it at all. And that is to enter into payment agreements that pay a set amount for delivering the clinical services to a cohort of patients. And then it doesn't matter whether you bring them in the office or talk to them on the phone as long as the job gets done. Now, I will caution you that that sounds great. The problem is, and human nature is human nature, the problem is that patients don't get seen when they actually need to. So you have to put up guardrails around quality of care and outcomes, or that model, that payment model, will provide perverse incentives to provide less care. And that we cannot accept, absolutely not. So we need to have good quality measurement, required mandatory quality measurement to protect patients. But honestly, at the end of the day, that's the right way to do it, right? How you make the sausage doesn't matter as much as how good it tastes, right? So that's what we need to do. We really do. So do you think we'll see elements of, I know you were involved early on with uh, helping the government think through with with some of the leadership from the industry, think through the foundations of OCM, and hopefully it would move to OCF, but we know that's certainly not on the table right now. We're going to stay with OCM. Is that a good model for us still? Two-sided risk, targets, total cost of care? I will say that I had always thought that OCM and the proposed OCF both are transitional models, right? So the OCM was transitional in the sense that it allowed physicians to start thinking about total cost of care and how clinical decisions impacted the cost of care for patients. It got them comfortable with looking at claims and and figuring out where opportunities for care improvement are. It was really important. I will point out to you that the evidence thus far, and I'm saying this based on the publication last week of the report on performance periods one through three of the OCM participants' cost of care compared with non-participating but matched practices, which showed essentially no savings, literally no savings, tells us that that transition is not quite enough if savings are our major goal. OCF is interesting because it is yet another step on the transition. So there's a couple things that are so important in OCF. The two, in my mind, that are most important are, number one, is you really do have to take risk. The second is that you do, in fact, get paid a capitated payment for all professional services. That is, E&M services, chemotherapy infusion services, and let's just say telehealth services, right? So there's a huge step forward there in terms of physicians and practices getting in the mindset that I'm going to get a certain amount of management fee for this group of patients. And I'm going to have a population of these patients. And I need to think about how I make it work. Now, interestingly, that doesn't at all approach the biggest challenge that OCM and OCF will face, which is medical cost inflation due to drugs. Neither one of them approach that. But the White House showed you how they're going to approach that 
in the executive orders that came out last Friday. Drug costs are not going to be managed within these care delivery models. They're going to be managed outside these care delivery models. And I think that we have seen what some people think the path forward looks like. I'll remind you that when Lee Newcomer did his project with those initial practices, he called it bundle reimbursement. The most important thing was not whether or not it generated savings. The most important thing was for the practices in that model, they accepted a fixed reimbursement in lieu of chemotherapy margin, drugs were paid at invoice. He proved that practices could do that. That was so important. Groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking. And that I think is ultimately what we're going to see. We're going to see reimbursement models that hold physicians accountable to total cost of care, reward them more if they do better with their population and drugs will be taken out of it and will be replaced by some sort of management fee. That that I think is the inevitable path. Now, how long is it going to take to get there? I am the foggiest idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it might've been you that um, said this, but I've heard it from others in different ways that uh, it's terrible that we have to be dependent on drug margins to support our care models with our patients and our practices. Yeah, you know, Bert, there's a history about that, right? How we got into this circumstance. I mean, oncology office practice has the highest overhead structure of any medical subspecialty. Oncology nurses are just blessings, right? They're angels, but they ain't cheap. And I I think overhead in practices that deliver chemotherapy in the office, it's quite high. Um, Now, you know, I'm not going to defend the system because as the cost of drugs has gone up, so has the profitability of oncology practices. And far be it for me to set a number at which I think reimbursement is fair. But in fact, that is exactly what we're going to be. that trend continues. We're going to be faced with that. That's just just the innovation. So let's go back to the OCM, OCF, and obviously drug inflation or new drug coming to market distorting the cost index that we're using to ground payments on. How about the, you know, the, you, know, you discussed this today with everyone. We heard it again, I think, in previous panels. The awareness that we have today that patients are delaying early screening. And we're going to see cases coming in that are incurable at higher cost of care, late stage cancers. Is that going to also, you know, for payers, that presents an underwriting problem? Will that also um, put some of the brakes on our ability to? really be comfortable in going to these risk arrangements if we're a practice now in OCM. Yeah, no doubt. So, you you know, I think uh, most people know my wife practices oncology and they're starting to have more foot traffic. And she said, you know, routine office visits aren't so routine anymore because people come in, they're off schedule, they haven't had scans, they didn't get their mammogram, all this stuff. Yes, I think it is perhaps unrealistically optimistic to think that we're going to move rapidly into the next phase of alternative payment models. I think, for example, if we look back how rapidly patients sought medical care after recovery from the recession in 2008, it was much slower than people had anticipated. And I think we're going to have the same problem here. There had been discussion about capacity and pent-up demand. And yes, there's pent-up demand, and yes, there's capacity issues, but there are a lot of factors that are going to weigh into how rapidly people kind of get back into their own personal, let's call it wellness groove. And among those are the fact that, you know, we're seeing different 
waves of COVID outbreaks across the country, consumer and patient confidence is directly related to that. So we've got a ways to go, I'm afraid. Yeah. So I can't help feel sorry for community oncology or, or even anyone who's built a factory, an efficient factory for dealing with the new drug innovations, the, the chemotherapy, the infusions that are going on. And now we see through policy and some changes with payers, well, you know, maybe Keytruda, which will be a long-term investment in that patient, can be done in a less expensive environment to help be responsible in managing healthcare costs. We need to have partnerships with practices, but at the same time, we want to decouple them from these infrastructure, these financial investments they've made. I think the horse is out of the barn. What's your feeling on the, the telehealth, home infusion opportunity? And of course, you know, we're hearing from patients who have yes. a voice here too, that yes. we don't yes. want to particularly sit in the hospital, even though, to your point, there's no proof that someone's caught COVID by sitting in an infusion suite today. Yes, I think that's right. I think patients clearly have a high degree of confidence and satisfaction right now. At least that's what has been reported with telehealth services and to some extent with, uh, the, with the limited data that we have regarding home infusion services. Now, that said, it reminds me a little bit about things like the presidential polls in the 2016 election. If you ask a certain subset of patients, you're going to get a certain answer. We should be very careful about that. I don't know what's going to happen. I think we will see some effect of that consumerism on the care delivery model. I actually think... <laughs> I think that the topic that we discussed at the very end of the meeting this morning, the call this morning, the issue of whether or not we're going to see reemergence of the debate around a single payer, which will profoundly influence all those care delivery questions. That to me is what gives me indigestion because yes. Yes. I think, uh, I, you know, there's a lot of things that health insurance is not. But there are things that health insurance is. It's it's kind of like, it's kind of like the discussion of buy and bill, right? Everybody hates buy and bill. Perverse incentives. The only problem is, we don't have a great alternative. In fact, right. no we can, There is just no question that buy and bill has led to a very patient-friendly, extraordinarily efficient system. So if you're going to replace it with something for whatever reason, in this case, it's financial then you better have something that's pretty good because you know I and other people and patients, they've gotten accustomed to a certain level of service. And if you're gonna change it up, well, there'll be consequences. So let's do this thoughtfully. And so, we, you know, it's an interesting time. It's good to be old at this time, Bert, because uh, <laughs> I can sit and watch this uh, from my, the comfort of my armchair without having to worry about right. whether my practice is going to be solvent tomorrow. Right. So right. that's good. You know, so it'd be unfair to me to give you a yes or no answer because there's so much in your head. But, you know, I thought what you asked, and maybe it was unfair to have asked the panel, but look, who's ever going to take over the White House or stay in the White House? We're going to see huge disruption ahead. The powder is in the rifles. Everyone's ready to start shooting. Uh, 
does it really matter if it's Republican or democratically controlled? Don't you believe that this whole ecosystem and the cost of care and the way we deliver care is going to be under attack and remodeled and they're going to be, you know, the unintended consequences of what happens also, which is always something that comes out of Washington. And they are the big 800-pound gorilla in cancer care. So what would you tell your colleagues looking ahead? Because you don't have the crystal ball. We don't know if the polls are right or wrong. Does Trump stay or Biden comes in? But we do know one thing, right, Mike? We're going to see profound changes in the delivery system and the funding. Yeah. So the answer is no, I don't think it matters who comes in in terms of the likelihood that we will have significant dialogue. I think it's a matter of degree. And I think that, for example, and remember, I'm apolitical. Mm -hmm. I think if the Democrats uh, do, in fact, sweep, that we will see a much more government-focused care delivery approach. I think Trump, should he get reelected, the Republicans will continue to look at alternatives which include things like what was discussed in the executive orders last Friday, things like reference pricing, even negotiation of pricing, formulary management, rebate elimination, all those kind of things. Mind you, the irony here is those are not really Republican things, right? That's not what Republicans usually usually do in the market, but it's quite different than the government taking over all of healthcare. It's profoundly different. So, you know, we'll see what happens. No matter who gets elected, one thing that, at least to me as an old guy watching politics over the last three and a half years has suggested to me is that the country is profoundly divided and getting anything done, especially big things, so hard. Oh, man, so hard. Yeah. Well, I totally agree with you. And, uh, Look, um, personally, I believe that the private enterprise system works well. I think we heard that from Dr. Sherman today. And insurance, I don't think evaporates and gets thrown under the table. I think our market mechanisms, you know, the being an economist too, I have to support our own theories that supply and demand seems to find the modifiers and level sets and delivers value. Would you leave it alone? I think government should be there to protect us from certain things, but not to tell us how healthcare should be delivered. I think that should be up to the system and the market makers. So uh, I thought today's conversation, again, you know, great. Any one of those topics, Mike, we probably could have done two (laughs) hours on. (laughs) It's always the case, Bert. You got me some great panelists. Being a moderator with panelists who are strongly opinionated is a really easy job. Yeah. And it was concise. So thanks again for today. Uh, and I know we look forward to the annual meeting. I think you can see later today, Mike, we have that agenda over the coming weeks from October 12th through November is pretty concise. We have about 35 topics. We have all the co-chairs laid out and hopefully everyone can elect who they want on those panels and we can get our job done over the next week or two and get everyone fully recruited for that. So we're calling it the web side instead of fireside we started discussing the word virtual terrible word <laughs> to me it's not real you know so we you know we thought more of a fireside chat you know real topical conversations in real time that'd be the way we promote it 
And I know we're looking forward to uh, building that out. It'd be a unique meeting that we have this year. So with that, thanks again for your time this morning. And we will reconvene shortly. But stay tuned. I think tomorrow will be really interesting, too. I think we have some pretty good panelists from the cancer centers. And then Ted Oaken has his crew up there, which we know some of the things. But it would also be interesting to see how they're doing. And then later on, Mike, we also have uh, the revenue cycle management people coming back, which I thought was outstanding because it really gave us some internal looks at patient visits, the cash flow finances of what's going on cancer care today. So I'm really looking forward to that because I think that really is, instead of anecdotal conversation, we actually have some facts to look at. Well, gee, that was just great today. And thank you for joining. Thank you to our faculty and our panelists. As usual, great content and the sharing of information, usually important if we are going to improve access and the quality of care that we're responsible for delivering along with change in this ecosystem. Like today, there'll be other and future webcasts. We cover all topics and all stakeholders. Stay tuned. Also, we post this on our website. It's very important that you can dial down and share with your colleagues. So we encourage you to do that. Additionally, if any of you have any comments, send them in through our website. If anyone would like to participate in speaking or has some other ideas, please share them with us. That's our mission. Thank you for joining. Talk again.